Heavenly Father, how faithful you have been, Father, to take us through this work, this book, that you have brought us all back here this morning to finish it and to hear from the wisdom that you gave to James, Father. We thank you, Father, for this book. We thank you, Father, for the message, the difficult message that we need to hear. Thank you, Father, for all the exhortation and for all of the reminders of of what it means to walk in faith and how to live our life outwardly and, and not merely rest on our inward confession, but but to make clear to the world what we believe. Thank you, Father, for the reminders of how to treat our brothers and sisters, how to view the eternal realm instead of the worldly day of, of today. Thank you, Father, for so many things in this letter. And, and even if at times when we heard it taught, Father, it wasn't something we were feeling thankful about, we were feeling rather convicted over, but nonetheless, Father, we know it is, it is a means to an end in our life. So thank you, Father, that, that you have, as any good father would, have set about to teach us and instruct us and guide us into righteousness. And thank you, Father, for a church in which this is the way we spend our time. Rather than consumed with the wisdom of the world and with, with the ideas of men, rather, Father, a church that puts your word and your ideas first and considers them above all else. Thank you, Father, for that gift. For many would long for it in this world, and many cannot find it, but you have placed us here. And we are thankful, Father. And we also ask, Father, as we conclude the book, that well, while you are with us here now, teaching us that you would remain with us, Father, ever-present in the Spirit, guiding us into following it out so that we would not be hearers only, but rather be doers of this word, as James has commanded us. Let our learning here, Father, be just the beginning, not the end. We pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we draw to a close in the book of James. And you would agree, I'm sure, it's been a powerful letter. It's probably worth a moment of review because this has been going on for a few weeks. And I know for many of you that you haven't had the chance to be here every week. So let me just run down chapters 1 through 4 and then see where that leaves us as we finish 5 today. Just briefly, chapter 1, James says, Consider it joy when you face trials. Because, remember, he said those were tests brought by the Lord to us, by the Father, to allow us to demonstrate spiritual maturity in the face of those trials. That's why we should count it joy, because it's a wonderful opportunity to show outwardly how we've grown inwardly by the work of the Spirit. And that was a life-changing perspective. I don't know for you, but it was for me. The thought that I could look at a circumstance in my life that was tough or a trial or a test and reconsider how I face it in light of what it means to God. Turn my circumstances to good, as it were, by how I respond to my circumstances. What a difference that that teaching made for me. And then chapter 2. Summing that up, James says, Don't show favoritism when we encounter men of a different social status. Don't view our brothers and sisters as the world views people. View those around us as God views them, which is to say... We are Christ living in this world. We are his ambassador. And then James says, if we do show favoritism, we violate the royal law, which we took some time to understand. But when we pass these tests, these tests like a test of how to contend with people of different social status, when we pass all these tests, he says in chapter 2, we are essentially declaring our faith outwardly through 
good works. We are proving our faith through good works. While it is already true that we are saved by faith, we are now making that declaration publicly when we do things according to our faith. And then in chapter 3, James moved to the topic of speech. You remember we spent a period of time talking about the tongue and about speech. James puts forth this principle that the tongue and the way we use our mouth is a key to avoiding a life of disobedience. Really, you could, you could argue, as James does, that our entire life of righteousness can, can be directed one way or another by how we use our mouth and our tongue and our speech. And he gave examples that taught that if we yield to the Spirit in us, like the captain of a ship, he is capable of steering our tongue and therefore our entire life into obedience counseled by God's Word. And then if we endeavor to put into action what he is leading us to do through the Spirit, we can accomplish the righteous life that he has called us to lead. But it comes down to that yielding process. Finally, chapter 4, James says, Instead of seeking after the world's wisdom and the world's riches, just the world in general, he says, don't set your mind there because when you do, it leads to discord. The fights, the quarrels, the problems in the church and in the body of Christ are often derived from worldly pursuits and rivalries and ambitions and jealousies. And when we pit those against each other in the body of Christ, that's where the fights begin. We lie against the gospel, he said. When we live that way, because we are acting like the world, we're acting as if the gospel doesn't matter, that it doesn't mean anything different than what the world is already preaching. We lie against it in that sense. And James says there's consequences for living that kind of life beyond just the quarrels that take place in the body. He says your prayers will go unanswered. And of course, he referred to the prayers that come with selfish motives, the prayers that say, give me what I want. He says you shouldn't expect those to be answered. And he gives a warning to those in the church who are self-sufficient and prideful and self-dependent. He said, when you don't respect God's sovereignty, you should expect his chastisement. Then finally, in chapter five, where we find ourselves this morning, we covered just the first part of it last week. And in that first part, if you remember, he opens with a warning to the unbeliever, to those who had attached themselves in some capacity to the church, were hanging around. Because they were hanging around, they might hear this letter read in an open forum back in its day when James's letter was written to the churches. So James speaks to that group, the rich in this case, he calls them, the rich and unbelieving Jews who had attached themselves to the early Jewish church. And in that warning, he warns them that their stubbornness, their self-reliance, their desire for wealth and power instead of humility and dependence on God was their own undoing. As I said, these are, these are chapters and lessons that were really just one convicting message after another. And as I reflected on the conviction before I go into the text for the day, I remember thinking at times in my study that this conviction was so powerful precisely because James goes headlong into core issues of the Christian walk. He doesn't spend time on the periphery. He went right at the heart of matters in the church. He talks about the struggles that we all Face. That's what's so powerful about this letter. He doesn't talk about the, the 5% issues that some of us face and others don't have any familiarity with. No, he talks about the 95% case. About improper speech. About selfish prayer life. About favoritism. Of seeking after the world. Seeking worldly goals instead of eternal ones. And then finally, on an unwillingness to live out our faith in righteous works. A kind of lazy Christian life. Folks, that's why this letter is so powerful, because you see yourself in it every time you read it. At least I do. So we finish 
James today, and as we do, I want to give, I want to ask you to give careful consideration to the way he wraps up his message today. Because James, I think, must have known as he wrote this letter that it's going to leave readers reeling from blow after blow after blow. Can you imagine hearing this letter read to you in one sitting, never having heard it before? And by this point in the letter, you've heard yourself called out on thing after thing after thing. You're probably shrinking back in your chair wondering if anyone can still see you anymore because you know and they probably know that you've done most of these things wrong. And the criticisms are hurting. And though those hits were necessary and they are appropriate and they're ultimately going to bring us to a better place, I don't think James wants to leave his readers without at least some words of encouragement. So the end of this letter moves in that direction toward encouraging exhortations around how to live patiently waiting for the Lord in light of the fact that we have these struggles. Last week the word patience came up because he was talking about keeping our mind focused on the return of the Lord. You remember the example I gave last week as James mentions don't be angry, don't take vengeance. You remember I asked you, if I told you that the Lord was returning for His church tomorrow and you knew that, could you be patient in the face of some offense, of somebody's inconsiderate action against you, or some hatred or some word against you? Could you look at that action and forget it for the moment and turn aside from any desire to take revenge or or to react negatively if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow and you, you didn't want that to be the last thing you did before the Lord's return? Could you wait? And could you wait knowing that it will be his turn to to bring vengeance to those who have been harming us or or attacking us? And we all agreed, yes, we could wait a day. And then I reminded us all that the Bible makes clear that his return is imminent. It could very well be today, if not tomorrow. But if it proves to not be tomorrow, then the question remains, can you wait one more day? Because it's always possibly tomorrow. Patience is all about knowing What we want dearly in this life is in fact coming without us having to do anything to make it happen. There was a small boy who was at a farm one time looking at ripe tomatoes that were on the vine in this farmer's garden and he offered to the farmer he would give him five cents for one of the tomatoes. And the farmer looking at the ripe tomato on the vine said, no, that's worth at least a dime in the market. I can't take less than a dime for it. And so the boy pointed to a smaller green one that was next to it on another vine and said, well, would you give me that one for five cents? And the farmer said, well, sure, that one's probably worth only about five cents. And the boy said, okay, I'll pick it up in about a week. (laughs) It's all about patience. It's all about knowing what's going to happen is going to happen. You don't have to force it. You just have to look forward to it. James reminded us of the prophets, remember, and of the endurance that they suffered and of Job and and all of the things that you can see in their lives to remind us that men have had to wait patiently through suffering from the beginning. This is nothing new. We're not alone. And now in verse 12, he finishes the letter with specific examples of how a patient Christian will live demonstrating their patience. For example, verse 12, he says, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. Or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. James says, above all, a Christian should not swear an oath. Now, before we can understand what his concern is here in this text, what he's actually asking us to do or not do, you need to understand the specific action that he's referring to, in in particularly going back into the Greek, but just culturally as well. He says in the text we read, We should not swear an oath either by heaven 
or by earth. Now, what he's speaking about here is making a promise or a commitment to someone. And then following that promise or that commitment, we add an oath. An oath is something to assure the person or a witness that we are going to keep the earlier promise or vow. And understand, an oath is not the promise. An oath is something added to a promise. So I say, I promise to do something, and then I add an oath. And an oath was a swearing against the name of something or the the identity of something. Something in heaven, something on earth. And this process of identifying our earlier promise with some other entity was intended to invoke that entity's authority as a means of ensuring I will keep my vow. So, for example, if I were to call an oath or swear an oath on the name of some judge or on the name of a policeman or on the name of some other person of authority, what I'm saying is I will keep my promise. And if I don't, this person has the right to enforce my promise, to punish me if I don't or to force me if I don't. So the person I'm swearing to now has a third party that they can turn to for recompense if in the case I fail to keep my promise. That's what an oath means. James is not talking about here the kind of vows that we would take as required by law. For example, in a courtroom. He's talking here about voluntary vows. Vows we put upon ourselves as a way of assuring someone they can trust us. Now, within Jewish culture, in the day this letter was written, an oath that mentioned God's name or referred to God's name was considered to be binding, and breaking that vow was punishable under the law. But oaths sworn to other things, things, including things in heaven, other things in heaven, like the name of an angel, for example, or swearing by the throne of, of heaven, or something like that, or oaths against something on the earth, swearing by the temple, swearing by the priest, swearing by something else on earth, those vows were not considered binding under Jewish practice, Jewish custom which gave Pharisees the opportunity to take advantage of this self-made loophole and use it to avoid obligations whenever it suited them. So Pharisees were notorious for this. They would appear to be swearing in a binding way, but they would craft the language just so, such that when they wanted to get out from that obligation later, they could turn back to their own words and say, actually, I didn't swear by God's name. If you noticed, I didn't use his name. I said this or I said that. And it was completely, used, completely an effort to manipulate things so they could get what they wanted. That had led people to completely mistrust them, of course, mistrust what they were saying and mistrust vows. It meant their word couldn't be trusted. James says we're not to be like that. We're not to swear oaths at all by anything, whether God's name or not, in heaven or on earth. Avoid the whole process of taking an oath. Don't bind your trustworthiness to someone else or to something else. Let it stand on its own. I want you to consider what a vow means. It means that somebody else is involved in enforcing our own word. It implies that the judge will be necessary. It suggests that we are not trustworthy by ourselves. That if we don't have the judge, you're not sure what you're going to get from me. Instead, James says, just speak truth and then keep your word and you won't need vows or judges or anyone to intercede. Secondly, Vows are a form of impatience. Now, if you haven't thought of it in that way, let me show you how that's true. James is saying, be patient. Wait on the day of the Lord. And he says, if you want to show him that you're patient, don't make vows. How is a vow a sign or a picture of impatience, of not waiting on the Lord? 
Well, think of it this way. When you obligate yourself to some future action by a binding vow, you are presuming to know God's plan for the future. James says, don't risk doing this because you will bring judgment upon yourself. And here's what he means. If you swear by God's name that you're going to do something in the future, but then God's own plan for your life is different and he doesn't allow you to come to the point of completing your vow, you are still obligated by your vow from God's point of view. You made a vow by God's name, he holds you to it. Even if you made a rash vow to do something that God himself was not prepared to let you do because it wasn't his plan, you were impatient. You thought you knew better about what the future held. You made a vow of what it would be. You made that vow by God's name. You bring him into that agreement. He says that's risking judgment because if that thing you want to do is not on God's roadmap, then it's not going to happen. And if it's not going to happen, you're going to break your vow. And if you're going to break your vow, invoking God's name, Scripture says, means you will receive a penalty from God for having vowed by his name. Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 5, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. Paying here does not reference simply paying out money. It means paying it as in keeping it. For God takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Jesus says the same thing in the Gospels, quoting from this same passage in Ecclesiastes in chapter five of Matthew, verse 33. Listen to what Jesus says about making vows. Jesus says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Jesus himself says, when you... Consider a vow, and what he's referring to here is what Ecclesiastes is referring to. Saying to someone, I'm going to do this, and I swear by the name of God I will keep this vow. Something to that effect. Watch out. You better do it. You better be sure you can do it. You better be sure that's God's direction in your life to do it, and that you know God will permit you to do it, because if that doesn't play out, you have brought judgment upon your head. You're gambling that the future is going to turn out the way you expect, and in your impatience to know and predict it, you risk being wrong. And if you're wrong, God's going to hold you accountable for a rash vow. That's Scripture's testimony. That's why James warns in verse 12, we risk falling under judgment when we vow. Now, what is the judgment going to be? Well, we can say some things it won't be. Your salvation is not at risk. We can always rule that out. We're talking here about how God chastises his children who do the wrong thing. But just because that's not on the table doesn't mean there's not a lot of other stuff that might happen that you don't want to have anything to do with. There's certainly no reason to take the risk. Just say yes to things, say no to things. And then back to what James said earlier in his letter, don't say what you're going to do next week or next month or any time in the future because God alone has that in control. You're to worry about what he's given you to do today and trust in that. That's what patience in God means. Trusting him for the future. Now, for those type A Christians in the room, and I count myself in this category, you know who you are, right? The ones who would rather solve the problem than wait for someone else to solve it. Someone who prefers action over patient waiting. 
or as some would call it, active waiting. To that group, James now gives the proper biblical way to act when you're prone to action, but doing it in a godly way. Verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. If anyone is cheerful, he is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will forgive him. They will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray to one another, for, sorry, pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James says to those who want to act, here's what you can do. He says, is there anyone among you who is suffering? And the word suffering here means enduring hardship. Think of it as an ongoing situation. Somebody who's in the middle of a trial, for example. Is anyone in here suffering in any way whatsoever in life? Okay, well then we can listen to what comes next, because that's everybody. From that he says, the answer is pray. Praying is the purest form of active waiting. Waiting on the Lord and through prayer appealing to Him for His will to be done and for His strength in our life to deal with it. And the act of praying necessarily requires we stop acting first. Have you ever noticed that? If you're busy solving your own problem, it's almost impossible in the midst of that activity to have a true, heartfelt, directed prayer life. You really have to stop one thing before you can get on your knees and do the next thing, don't you? And so often we try the first thing first and then we fail and then we get on our knees. I I know that pattern in my own life. But can any of us honestly say that our first response to circumstances that make us angry or make us sad or scared or frustrated is to stop, drop and pray? There are those who are very good at that and I have to admire them. But for many of us, it's sort of a mixture of reactions So James says, when you're in the negative state of life, the active response in a waiting sense is to pray. On the other end of the spectrum, he says, is anyone cheerful? Now, what he's referring to there is literally the opposite situation. When life is good and we are pleased with our circumstances and with the way things are going, do we ever stop and consider the source of that joy and and that success? Do we praise the Lord in the midst of that joy? Or do we congratulate ourselves and then make plans on how to take advantage of that and go further? It's just as easy to grow impatient in our successes and then turn that to reason not to pray, not to seek God or praise His name, but to seem to think that we've got our life together so everything's hunky-dory. We don't need you right now, God. We'll come back to you when we get into one of those bad moments. That's far more likely in our, in our triumphant culture. In my experience, we all know we're supposed to pray when we're in the foxhole, but how many times do we pray when when we're winning the battle? In both cases, whether it's joy or sorrow, our patience and our dependence on God is best displayed in a prayer life that turns to God first and consistently rather than last and sporadically. Like the little girl who turned to God a little too late in her prayers, it was bedtime and she was saying her prayers and mom was sitting there next to her on the bed and she says, God bless Mommy and Daddy and me, and please make Madrid the capital of Australia. And her mother wonders, where did that come from? And so after the prayer was over, she says, why did you want Madrid to be the capital of Australia? And the child says, because that's what I put on my geography test. (laughs) 
a little late to get that one done. You may notice as I read through that section, there's a couple of other very intriguing statements that James makes, promises and, and assurances that he makes that we need to look at and understand in context. But just to set the opening statement, the proper response to the life we lead, whether sorrows, joys, etc., is a prayerful, patient waiting on God. Because honestly, folks, that good day could be followed by a bad, and we certainly hope that the bad days will give way to good. So on any given day, the response should just be the same, patiently waiting, depending on God, and then trusting him for how we are to respond in a godly way. But then James moves into specifically what is probably the most common situation facing Christians sooner or later. In other words, we may not all have exactly the same kind of trials and joys, but there's at least one category that every Christian faces inevitably sooner or later. And those are issues of health or sickness. So James raises that one first, or most specifically, I should say, in this list. He says in verse 14, is anyone sick? And so the issue becomes, how does someone respond in godly patience to a sickness? James says, first, call the elders and have them pray over the sick and anoint the person who is asking for healing. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise up the sick person and forgive him for the sins he's committed. Now, we need to break that down and understand why he's mixing those statements, why he's mixing those concepts into this particular discussion. This is a promise of Scripture that I know many Christians have puzzled over. Perhaps some in here still have some concerns or or questions. I would add that many teachers, as they've addressed this part of Scripture, have confused the issue furthermore through their own teaching. And I hope to not be one of those today. So let's look at this in a very careful way. Let's try to understand the specific kind of sickness that he's dealing with here, if we can. And then this way that he gives for dealing with this particular kind of suffering or sickness. First, he says we have a sick person who needs healing. The sickness, and the word in the Greek makes clear, the sickness is an incapacitating sickness. The word in Greek is esneo, esneo, and it literally is from a similar word we get the word anesthesia. It means weakness, as in you can't get up, you can't move, a kind of debilitating weakness. So the person is weak and unable to get up. They're almost anesthetized. All right? So this is not to say that we're limiting the kind of sickness, but we are describing a kind of situation. You might say this person's on their deathbed or they've, they've been brought to a serious point in their physical life. They're, they're at a very weak point. Point number two, what is that person to do first? Well, according to James, they are to summon the elders. Now, what's interesting about that is it implies some things. Before we even look at what it's saying, it implies some things. It implies you are in a church. It implies you are in a church with elders. It implies you are a part of a body in which you have recognized leadership within that body who know you and will respond to your request to come see them. You see, before you get to that point, you have to be engaged in a body. You have to know the leadership. They have to know something of you. They've got to at least know where you live. You've got to know who they are so you can call on them. He's building a concept of how someone is to work within the body of Christ under these circumstances. He is not giving, we can already see up front, he is not giving a recipe for how someone cures themselves, is he? Then next, the elders who are called are to pray over this person and anoint the person with oil. Now, anointing with oil is a ritual, but it's a ritual with significance. 
Similar to the baptism we perform uh, on believers, it is picturing the work of the Holy Spirit, only in this case the oil represents the Spirit's work in sanctifying the body. So the water of baptism is a picture of God's saving grace in the new birth we have in faith. The oil that is used in the anointing ritual is to picture God's sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So water is the saving, oil is the sanctifying in the way those two rituals have meaning in the way they picture something. So you have elders who are praying over somebody and they're anointing with oil. This builds the picture a step further. First, we had someone who's engaged with leadership in a church. They're accountable to that leadership. They're known by that leadership. Now we move to another clue. We have the elders performing a prayer and ritual that is signifying that person being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note something here that is commonly misunderstood. In fact, I'd say if there's something in the letter of James, particularly in this chapter, that is classically misunderstood in my experience of hearing others teach, it's this verse on this point that the thinking is often that people have to pray for their own healing, and if they can pray for their own healing in faith, they'll be healed. But notice in the text, who's praying? Not the person, the elders. When James says a prayer offered in faith will heal, whose prayer must he be talking about? The elders. This is a specific situation about specific prayer from a specific group. This is not general to our own prayer about ourselves. That is not to say that God can't work through our own prayer. I'm not invalidating that. I'm only saying that if you're going to use this verse in context, you've got to notice what it says is elders praying over someone else. So the elders are to pray in faith. Now, that's a very important statement. And it's similar to the instructions you find elsewhere in Scripture when we're told to ask for things in the name of the Lord. That's a similar concept to praying in faith. And what they both mean is prayer directed by the Spirit in accordance with God's will. In ancient times, when someone said they were doing something in the name of another person, That was like a power of attorney. It had a legally binding force in that culture. So if I were the slave or the representative of some lord or king, and I was sent by that king to do business on his behalf in another part of his kingdom, I could arrive in that part of the kingdom and I could say, I'm here in the name of king so-and-so. And that was equivalent to me showing up with a power of attorney to conduct business in his name. So whatever I did was assumed to be what the king told me to do. And so I'm acting in his place. That's what the phrase means in Scripture. You can say all day long, in the name of the Lord, do this, and in the name of the Lord, do that. But if it's not truly what the Lord wants done, it ain't going to happen. You didn't create it out of those words. It's not like he's a genie and you say the magic words and he does what you want. It's meant to imply you have tapped into the will of God. You know what the Spirit is directing and you're simply carrying out his instructions. And in that sense, you can be assured your prayer will be answered because you're doing what God has planned to do. Or speaking what God has planned to do. Similarly, the elders, when they pray over someone who's sick, they pray in faith. Faith has to have an object. What is the object of their faith? The faith they have is not in prayer, right? It's not in themselves. What is the object of their faith? Christ. So if they pray in faith, they are praying in the faith that what they are saying is God's will, and therefore they can be assured it will take place. Obviously, if the men, if these elders come upon this man who is sick and they do not feel the Spirit leading them to pray for this healing, then they cannot pray in faith. They can pray, but it won't be in faith. Fourth, the result of a prayer of faith from the elders 
will be that the Lord will raise up the person. The word for raise there is igiero, which means to waken or to bring to the senses. It is not the word for resurrection. It is not the word for salvation. In other words, James is not talking about raising someone up as in bringing them to salvation. He's talking about literally raising them up in the physical sense of curing them and strengthening their body. Remember, what was their condition? They were weak physically. What's the result? They're raised up physically. They're strengthened back to standing and and living in a strong way. Fifth, the sins of this sick person will be forgiven. This is probably one of the more challenging aspects of the entire section here because you wonder, well, why does James mention this at all? Why is sin even in the conversation? I thought we were talking about physical healing. Why would we need this forgiveness? And, and are we saying that if the guys didn't show up and pray, this person would still be in their sin? As in unsaved? As in going to hell? Is that what we're talking about? The answer comes from several clues, and I'm going to go back through them again for you. First, notice that the one who is sick must be the one who calls for the elders. The one who is sick, weak, must Come to a point of saying, I will accept and I need the elder's involvement in my situation. And they must call for the elder. Someone else can't call for you. So they must initiate the appeal. Then notice, the ones to be called are elders. They are not men with gifts for healing, though those kind of men may exist in the uh, eldership or in the body generally. But that's not the criteria. We're not talking about find the guy who's got the gift of healing. Send him to me. Or even people with a gift for prayer. That's not the requirement. It's the leadership. James seems to suggest here that he wants men of authority in the, in the church to attend to this issue. It's an issue of authority, not an issue of gifting. And then finally, notice in verse 16, James summarized all of this instruction by saying, confessing sins to one another and praying over one another is the condition or the manner for healing and forgiveness. When you put all of these clues together, if you take the whole thing together, here's what James is talking about. This is a situation in which the Christian themselves, the weak person, is under God's discipline for an unconfessed sin. This is no ordinary sickness. This is someone who is weak and made so by God as discipline against them because they are living in a life of unrepentant sin. They are not submitting to their elders or they are not listening to the counsel of the church. And they have put themselves in a position where they are being disciplined by God. But then James says, if that's the situation you're in, take the step of patiently relying on the Lord for his mercy and forgiveness. And if you do that, then you will see him remove this physical uh, discipline, this sickness, this weakness that he has placed upon the person. And it happens because the elders are involved. They come as a response to the call of that person, a repentant call for the leadership to come and pray over them. And then James says the prayers of those righteous men, they can accomplish much. Because under these circumstances, God is going to provide the merciful response for the one who has come through repentance. Now, before you wonder, well, is this the only time in which prayer makes any sense? Don't get me wrong. This is not to invalidate other times, other circumstances, when we call for people to pray for us when we're sick. That is not invalid just because this is very specific. But this is very specific. And so it cannot be seen as the general way in which we heal people from physical illness. Consider what Paul says to the Corinthian church at one point. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27, and this is in the context of the church misbehaving, and in particular, one, one really bad thing they were doing was they were abusing the Lord's Supper. 
And in response to that particularly bad sin in that church, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood and the body of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, same word in the Greek, and sick, and a number sleep. And that's a euphemism for dying. Why are there those in the church who are weak and sick and dying? Paul says it's because you have eaten and drank judgment to yourself. Why? Because you are disobeying in a way that is so offensive to God that he takes these actions against that body as judgment, as discipline. We're not talking about eternal judgment. We're not talking about losing salvation. We're talking about what God is free to do as our father and judge to those who wantonly, willfully disobey him, test him to discipline his children. And to those, he says, there's some of you who are weak, anastema, some of you who are sick, and some of you who are dead. You see, that's not a very common and popular concept in the church, but it's absolutely biblical. When Christians wantfully, willfully sin against the Father, He takes action, as every good father will. And those actions include bringing us into physical frailty and even death, if necessary, to produce the outcome He wants in His church. No different than Ananias and Sapphira. When they came before Paul and did sin, and God, through Paul's authority, allowed them to be put to death in the moment. We don't see that very often anymore, but it doesn't mean it's not available. And then think finally about it logically for a minute. If this were a general promise in Scripture that any time you're sick for any reason, someone can come and pray over you and you're guaranteed to be made well, take that thought, if it were true, take that thought to its logical conclusion. We would live forever. Right? If it were literally true that this verse is teaching us that just getting that process accomplished always guarantees that your body will be healed, why would anyone ever die in the church? Or the other way to look at it is when you do finally die and succumb to a sickness, faith ran out. The prayer didn't have faith anymore and you reached the limits and therefore you died. It's absurd. It's obviously absurd. It makes no sense. It counters scripture. It takes these verses out of context and pretends they say something they don't. The truth is your sickness, the one you have today, the one I'll have tomorrow, the one someone else gets next week, maybe the last one we get. But folks, we're all dying of something. Being healthy is just the slowest possible way to die. This body must die. It is supposed to die. It is good that it dies. God wants to replace it with one that doesn't know sin. You don't want this one forever. I know I don't want mine. And I'm not going to set the day of my death. God is responsible for that. But I am not going to hold on to it any longer than he makes it possible to hold on to anyway. And as things like sickness come upon me, I will pray for healing. I will seek medical attention. Those are not inappropriate things to do. But I will not be so wedded to this body that my entire existence is wrapped up in a desire to hold on to this physical body. That is folly. It's impossible and it's counterproductive. James is talking about someone who finds themselves in a situation out of sin that can be rectified by a repenting and a confessing of sin. And James actually makes a clear point here about the fact that both of these steps must be present. The key to moving out of the discipline God brings is first to repent, to truly believe and understand that what we're doing is wrong, and secondly, to confess. 
The reason he brings the elders to this man or insists that the elders be there is so that there is an authority within the body present and willing to receive the confession of someone who has repented. And we're not talking here about salvation prayer, of course. We're talking about sanctification. We're talking about somebody refusing to hear the counsel of the elders and then God puts them through an illness. Maybe as a consequence of their fooling around. And now they're on their bed and they realize God's at work in their, in their circumstances and they bring the elders to the side of the bed and they say, I have been committing adultery and I repent of that and I am asking God to re- forgive me of this sin and heal me over this situation. And with that kind of a faithful prayer from the elders, their body can be healed. Private sins should result in private confessions to the person that you've offended. Public sins should be confessed publicly to the group that knows about it. The goal is not to take something private and make it public. The goal is not to think that because you had something public, you can confess privately about it. You need to address it at the level at which it had an impact, but you must address it. And then to end the letter, he offers a classic example of how this process works with a man named Elijah. Verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I love the way he starts. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So this is not something reserved to special people. This is something all men and women have at their disposal. The opportunity to appeal in God's will according to his direction through the Spirit and see that prayer produce amazing results. God told Elijah what to pray, told him why, and Elijah followed suit. And based on his prayer, he stopped rain in all Israel for three and a half years. And then later when God was ready, he gave Elijah the command to reverse that. He prayed for rain and it rained. He prayed earnestly. The word there in the Greek implies with faith, with a trusting faith in God. He knew what God was telling him to do. He prayed with a full confidence. And it resulted in God doing the work. Now, what do you learn from that example? First, who stopped and then started the rain? Was it Elijah? Absolutely not. God did it, of course. Not Elijah, God. Secondly, how were God's actions then connected to Elijah? What's he getting credit for? If it's not for starting and stopping the rain, what's he getting credit for? In both cases, Elijah followed God's direction and prayed according to his will. And through those prayers offered in faith, he was able to accomplish miraculous things. By accomplish, we mean be associated with, be the instrument of God for those outcomes, not create them in his own power. That's exactly the perspective we take in our own prayer life. Whether it's in this specific context, as James gives it, or any context, when we pray, our prayer life is about aligning with God's will so that we know our prayers are backed by His desire and authority, not our own. That's the power of prayer. The power of prayer is in the power of God to do what He wills and for us to know that will in our prayer life. Finally, James ends the letter, writing in verses 19 and 20. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one of him turns back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you have any doubt about the context that I offered for the earlier statements about prayer, consider how he ends the letter. It's in the same context, right? He finishes the letter with this promise to the one who would be useful in turning someone away from sin. They're doing a good work. That's the context here at the end of five. Dealing with people who have walked astray 
And they are suffering under the penalty of God's judgment for that straying from God's word. If anyone strays from the truth, this is a verse I would encourage you to think about and linger on for longer than we have today. If anyone strays from the truth. How do we get into situations where we are spiritually or even physically weak, where we have a need for healing prayer, for confession, for repentance? How did we get there? How do we get into situations where we're suffering under God's discipline? According to James, it's because we depart from the truth. And departing from the truth means walking away from what we know in Scripture. It means walking away from what we've learned in the Bible. It means walking away from the Bible altogether. As I look around, you see a lot of churches and a lot of believers departing from the truth. If that's true, then is it any mystery that we have so many people in the body of Christ facing sorrows, facing weaknesses? Isn't that the natural expectation that we would have a very sick, hurting church if we have a church that's departing from the truth? James says that's how it begins. But James offers hope. He says that the brother or the sister that is used by God to turn one of these disobedient Christians back to the truth, to the word of God, in other words, that person has the potential to save someone from weaknesses, sickness, and even death. Physical death we're talking about. We may still yet be useful to God in helping someone else turn, even as they are useful for us. But you've got to want to work on it. You have to actually say to yourself, that's a worthy goal. That's a worthwhile enterprise. I need to spend my time thinking about how brothers and sisters in the body of Christ have in some way turned from the truth in their own walk. I may see it. They may not even recognize it themselves. If I'm willing to be transparent with them and share with them what I see and think and do it in a loving way, God may use me in such a way that that person avoids a sickness, avoids a weakness, maybe even avoids a death that was unnecessary in the sense that it could have come at a different time and in a different way. I don't think we often consider that. Well, how important is that in the body of Christ? If we're not willing to do that, why do we assemble? I hope you've appreciated, as I have, what James has done for us in this letter. And I hope, if nothing else, it has spurred us to think differently about our time together in the body, the time we gather, the purpose of it, and the ways in which we can live our life more faithfully in an outward way. Let's go to the Lord as we finish this book. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the patience of those here today who have listened to the conclusion of this book. Patience, Father, not only in the time that was required, but maybe even more importantly, patience, Father, to consider the convicting words of Scripture. Thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us through this letter over the last few months. And now, Father, the the work that remains in our lives will continue by the Spirit. Work, Father, to not only mold our lives to be like Christ, but work, Father, to support and and guide others in the body to do the same. With each chance to study and finish a book, Father, it's it's another notch in a belt of knowledge and of understanding, but, Father, it is much more than that. It is... It is an accomplishment in the sense that it is a yielding to your spirit and a recognition of the importance of Scripture. So I ask, Father, that each man and woman in here, as they've heard this letter over the last few weeks, will think differently about how they follow and obey the word that you've given us, how they would follow and obey the spirit. Let these things come back to mind. You promise, Father, that the spirit will bring these things back to mind. We trust that you will do that. So we ask that when the time comes, as we each make our decisions, you would point us to the truth reminding us of James and all that we've learned. Once again, Father, I thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church. Let us continue to grow. Let us find new brothers and sisters in the Lord and and bring others into the body of Christ as you would permit. 
Let us, Father, be useful to you in those works. And sustain us and grow us and increase our love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.